0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, my name is Susan Little. I am a professor of medicine and an infectious diseases physician at UCSD, and I'm here to talk tonight about uh, COVID vaccine clinical trials. Specifically, we're going to talk tonight about who will participate and who will benefit. And the outline tonight, we're gonna talk about the vaccine trials, outreach and recruitment, emergency use authorization, which I will explain when I get to that point, and then vaccine access and distribution. So let's start with the vaccine trials. Um, So you've probably been watching the news and heard a lot about the vaccine production process and the fact that it's moving very quickly. So shown up here, the target for vaccine availability is 12 to 18 months, and that is extraordinarily fast compared to the normal vaccine timeline, which is 8 to 15 years. So this is referred to, uh, this falls under the auspices of the operation warp speed. Um, So things are moving very, very quickly in order to make a COVID vaccine available very quickly in the middle of this global pandemic. So the the thing I first wanna reassure people is that moving very quickly does not mean we are skipping steps. It means that we are overlapping the process that normally takes place in vaccine production, but all the same steps are taking place. So, research, preclinical preparation, clinical trials, approval, manufacturing, and distribution. It's just that you can see instead of preclinical preparation taking two years, it's being accelerated, for instance, maybe in six months. Clinical trials, which is what I'm going to talk about today, often take up to six years, and now they're being accelerated to take place over 1.5 years. But you can still see if you add up all of these elements that are illustrated in red, they don't uh, add up to 12 to 18 months. So what's now happening, in addition to the acceleration, is that they're overlapping. So while clinical trials are taking place, already manufacturing is taking place as well. So that at the end of the clinical trials or in the midst of the clinical trials, when some early efficacy data are available, um, vaccine, we hope, will already be available and on the shelf for early distribution. So we'll talk about that a bit more, but again, it's acceleration, it's overlapping steps um, and frankly, it's also a whole lot of money to make this available um, to happen. So um, also the stages of clinical trials, um, we're also going through the same stages of clinical trials that, go, that have happened for all previous um, vaccines that have been made available. Phase one, phase two, phase three. Um, phase one um, are test trials to test the safety of whether the body can tolerate the product. And typically this is um, usually studies of less than a hundred people. Phase two, um, again, uh, the maximum tolerated dose and best dosing schedule, um, and whether the immune system um, develops the desired response to the compound. And typically, this is a few hundred to a few thousand people. And then finally, phase three um, does the product prevent infection or help reduce the severity of infection? And we're doing all of these same phases, but often again combined. So often, we now have a phase one, two study and a phase two, three study combined but all the same steps are taking place. And the studies I'm gonna talk to you about tonight are all phase three clinical trials. So we know for all of the compounds being tested in phase three vaccine trials, they all elicit or um, develop the desired immune response in people. They've all been through that phase of testing. What we don't know is does that immune response protect people? Does it prevent infection? Does it reduce the severity of disease? So that's where all of these trials are right now in study. So where are we? Um, So the phase three pipeline in the United States, the studies that are um, in process or underway right now are these six trials. Um, So there are six trials in the pipeline in the United States. Four of those are underway already. So the Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and Janssen are all underway. Two of them, the top two, Moderna and Pfizer, have already completed enrollment. And I'm going to talk to you about some of the preliminary data that are available for Moderna and Pfizer a bit later. What you can see is that these are all very large studies, um, 30 to 60,000 individuals that are going to be enrolled. Typically, the enrollment period is very short, eight weeks on average. Um, the platform or the way in which these vaccines present the, the um, uh, antigen or the protein that they're trying to develop the immune response to are different, um, but, uh, uh, and that's one of the beauties of this is that they're all trying uh, a different strategy. The start date, um, we've started a different uh, vaccine study almost every month since July. Um, And then the first readout, uh, the data readout. And what that refers to is the time frame during which the sponsor um, can um, apply for, uh, can do their first evaluation of um, safety and efficacy milestone data. And if the vaccine is found to be effective, um, can apply for an emergency use authorization. So based on preliminary data, can apply for that EUA. Um, So again, something that the vaccines all have in common, they're all looking at the same primary objectives. Is the vaccine safe and can the study vaccine reduce the severity and frequency of COVID-19 illness? They're all looking for roughly the same people as well, adults and people who are more more likely to be exposed to COVID-19. These are people with underlying medical conditions Um, people with greater chances of being exposed at their jobs, older um, individuals, people over the age of 65, people who live or work in elder care facilities, um, and then people who um, uh, live or work in congregate settings, and then people from racial and ethnic groups that have been more heavily impacted. Um, And during the course of the study, these are the endpoints we want. We want to evaluate um, cases of confirmed um, coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, Um, So participants who develop symptoms suggestive of COVID-19, the clinical syndrome, will be tested for the virus. And if that is confirmed, um, we will follow those individuals very closely for virologic, immunologic, and clinical endpoints, which are the endpoints um, that we need for the study. So I'm going to talk just one slide only for each of the three studies that we are um, doing at um, participating in at um, UC San Diego. Um, Moderna, also known as the COVE study, uh, phase three trial looking at messenger RNA. Um, uh, The vaccine is called mRNA-1273, catchy title. Um, And again, all of them are looking at the same thing, efficacy, safety, immunogenicity um, in adults. Um, And so... Uh, this vaccine um, it looks at the um, prefusion fusion stabilized S-protein or spike protein. And I can tell you right now, all of the available vaccines that are in clinical development that I just showed you are all looking at the same spike protein uh, as the target to elicit an immune response. They simply present it differently, in this case, messenger RNA. Um, Earlier studies, side effects are rare, um, not severe or serious, um, and you can see what the side effects are, um, but typically they resolve after 24 hours. Um, This study requires two vaccine injections, one at study entry and one a month later. Follow-up is two years and one month. Again, this is typical. All of the studies to date have a two-year follow-up. Randomization is one-to-one, meaning one person gets vaccine to one who gets placebo. This is a 30,000-person study um, across the United States with two years of um, follow-up. The... um, Uh, ACTRI and Hillcrest Clinics uh, are the locations less relevant for this presentation. Um, AstraZeneca uh, is the second uh, phase three clinical trial that we are participating in. Again, looking at the same uh, metrics, uh, the vaccine here is AZD1222. Um, This is a replication deficient simian or uh, macaque monkey adenoviral vector. Um, And again, it encodes the full length spike protein from SARS-CoV-2. Again, in earlier studies, side effects were generally mild to moderate and resolved quickly. Um, same approach, two injections at enrollment in one month, two years of follow-up. This time, randomization is two to one. So two people get vaccine to one who gets placebo, 30,000 people, two years of follow-up. Um, and just a unique feature of our study here in San Diego, we're using an entirely mobile clinic um, trying to reach those individuals uh, who are more underserved and most at risk in San Diego. So we're sending this mobile clinic to Chula Vista, Imperial Beach, and La Mesa. We're also um, sponsoring a subsite in El Centro, which has a very high rate of COVID cases, 5,700 uh, cases per 100,000 persons. Uh, our website is here if anyone's interested. Um then the Janssen study, uh, also phase three. This is their vaccine, uh, AD26, Cov2S. This is the vaccine. Um, and again, this is a replication incompetent adenovirus, this time a human adenovirus. So similar to the um, uh, AZ or uh, AstraZeneca study, a human adenovirus compared to the um, AZ study, which is a simian uh, ad- adenoviral vector. Um, both replication-incompetent adenoviral vectors, which are carrying the spike protein. Um, This vector has been used in many previous Janssen studies, um, but with different um, um, immune targets. Um, So for Ebola, Zika, HIV, but about 110,000 people have used this vector, again, for different diseases. So lots of previous experience. Again, side effects mild to moderate, resolved quickly. This one only requires one injection. Um, And again, a two-year follow-up randomization is one-to-one vaccine to placebo. This is a larger study, 60,000 people, uh, two-year follow-up, and we're using uh, a location in National City. The Department of Defense has provided us with a lot of trailers to set up um, a new clinic site at that location. Um, This is the first study that is truly international with 10 countries participating. So outreach and recruitment. Um, So you've probably heard about um, the disproportionate um, uh, attack rate of coronavirus among people of color. So for every every 10,000 people with coronavirus, 23 of those cases are among white, uh, 38 per 10,000 people overall, and 62 cases per every 10,000 are black, and 73 uh, are among Latino individuals. So there's a very disproportionate attack rate here. Um, and you can look at the, again, in the United States, the sort of this rate um, of COVID cases per, uh, by race, ethnicity, and then relative to the total population in dark blue. So if you look, for instance, among Hispanic Latino people, um, there are 33.7 cases um, as, as a proportion of the total population or total proportion of COVID cases, Um, compared to the proportion of those individuals within the total population. So a very disproportionate um, number of COVID cases relative to the proportion of um, this population in our total population, as compared to, for instance, whites, where the proportion of COVID cases is a much smaller proportion relative to the total proportion of whites in the population. Um, similarly, um, people of color have higher rates of hospital- cases, hospitalization, and death. Um, so if you look at American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian, non-Hispanic, Black, African American, and Hispanic Latino, um, sort of scanning across the top, um, nearly you know, one to three times, this is not higher, but roughly um, two to three times higher case uh, rate Hospitalization up to five times higher in American Indian and black, African American and Hispanic, and then death um, two times higher in black African American individuals. So overall, again, um, cases are higher, hospitalizations are higher, and death, are, death rates are higher depending on which um, uh, race and ethnicity group you are studying. So even in San Diego, um, when we look at the rate per 100,000, and again, this is updated daily, and the rate per 100,000 is um, uh, 3,000 cases among Hispanic Latino individuals per 100,000 compared to only 942 per 100,000 among whites. Um, Similarly, very elevated rates among Black African Americans and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders. So um, how do we, you know, when we try and um, reach out to these communities for whom we want to um, um, make the vaccines available, how do we build trust in these vulnerable communities? Um, There's a lack of trust among many of these communities in the healthcare system because of a history of mistreatment, unethical experimentation, and frank criminal neglect. Um, This has led to low COVID screening rates, especially in black communities. Um, And um, community engagement and outreach um, provided right now only in this time of sort of crisis um, to participate in these vaccine studies because we want to have representation is certainly not going to build lasting trust Um, and um, indications that the vaccine review process may be undercut by politics, um, as has been, you know, there's been a lot of suggestion of this during the last few months um, has further increased mistrust in the process. So it is critically important that um, communities of color participate in the vaccine pro- um, uh, vaccine clinical trials, both because we want um, communities of color to participate as they are represented uh, proportionally in our communities, but also because it is scientifically important that we understand that um, communities that have higher rates of hospitalization and death, that is higher disease, morbidity, and uh, mortality, we need to understand if the vaccines work as well in those populations. And if we don't have adequate representation in the vaccines, we're simply not going to be able to answer those questions. So how about emergency use authorization? So um, uh, I mentioned earlier all of these studies Moderna and Pfizer have both had um, an early uh, readout of their data. Now, importantly, they have not hit their first data readout, that is the day at which they can look at their efficacy and apply for emergency use authorization. They have taken an early look at their data. Um, So Pfizer announced on November 9th um, some really phenomenal and exciting news. They had greater than 90% Fewer cases of COVID-19 in vaccine participants versus placebo recipients. um, Looking at those without prior infection, many of these studies have allowed people who have experienced prior COVID in their um, uh, vaccine studies. Um, This analysis included only 94 cases of confirmed COVID, but that was enough to make this efficacy call. The study, at this point, had enrolled 43,000 and change participants. They had 42. Um, percent individuals with, and I quote, diverse backgrounds. I, I only know this information. We are not participating in the Pfizer study, um, and there were no safety concerns. So these data are actually not sufficient to apply for an emergency use authorization. The FDA is very clear about the, the amount of data that are needed to apply for an emergency use authorization, and Pfizer is not going to hit that um, that expected uh, milestone until the third week of November. Um, and that expected final analysis will include 164 confirmed cases. The sad news is we're marching toward that at an incredibly rapid pace because of the number of, um, the, the rate of um, COVID cases in this country. So the expectation is that they will do another analysis uh, on or about the third week of November and their submission, assuming they have similar data, their submission for an emergency use authorization to the FDA will follow very shortly thereafter. Similarly, Moderna, uh, a week later, on November 16th, announced very similar results. Now, these are both messenger RNA vaccines. So that's really good news. They both use nearly the identical approach. They both are um, using messenger RNA um, of a spike protein um, uh messenger template um, and they also found 95% fewer cases of COVID-19 in vaccine uh, compared to placebo recipients. Um, They also analyzed 95 confirmed cases of COVID-19. They also took an early look so they have to go back uh, and they just said sometime in late November and analyze um, their final analysis expected to be 151 cases. They have enrolled over 30,000 participants. Um, They were very clear at this early point, 36% were non-white, and they had no significant safety concerns. So again, phenomenal news. I'd say it's also really optimistic news for the subsequent vaccines coming along because they have all used the spike protein as their target. So given that these were so incredibly positive, I think it bodes well for the vaccine trials that are coming next. So what would be the impact of these emergency use authorizations that might come in early December on current studies, both Moderna, Pfizer and the others that are coming along? So number one, participants on these vaccine studies always have the option to leave the study for any reason at any time without penalty. Some of the protocols will offer vaccine to study participants. So it's not clear yet, um, but most of the studies do have language in there that says, you know, um, they will make vaccine available to people who are randomized to placebo. It's just not exactly clear when, whether that will be after the emergency use authorization, at the end of the study, at some interval time. But I think that will become clear very quickly um, after an emergency use authorization. Um, one concern is that participants will leave the trials, um, both the the current trials, Moderna and Pfizer, but the other ongoing trials, hoping that they will receive an emergency use authorization. So these new these Pfizer and Moderna studies are so effective, potentially, assuming they have the same data, that frankly the fear is that everyone is going to hop off uh, their existing trial to go quote get one of these EUA vaccines. Um, And that would be unfortunate because remaining on the existing study for a longer period of time would provide an opportunity to assess early readout of the ongoing study. So, for instance, that readout for AstraZeneca and um, Janssen, the next two studies... That only requires staying on study for a few more months. The readout for AstraZeneca and Janssen is expected to be in late February, early March. And again, unfortunately, it could be sooner if we don't get control of COVID pretty fast, because the thing that drives the readout is the number of COVID cases. And the readout for these studies was not expected to be so soon. It's just that COVID is accelerating rather than you know, we're not getting control of it. It's rather accelerating um, in the United States. And so the number of cases that accumulate rapidly is what drives the, the ability to do the readout sooner. Um, and then one thing to consider is that immediate EUA vaccine access will be limited, um, but it is expected to scale up over time. And I'll talk about that in a moment Um, And more EUAs. The more vaccines that have emergency use authorization means more people will get vaccine access sooner. EUA vaccine candidates um, with fewer storage restrictions are needed. Um, So by that, I mean that both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine have what's called cold chain storage restrictions. Both of them need to be stored at extremely cold temperatures. Pfizer at minus 70, Moderna at minus 20. And um, that means you're not going to go to your local doctor's office, likely, and get one of these vaccines because your local doctor's office doesn't have a minus 70 freezer. So um, these vaccines are going to need to be distributed through central um, um, distribution centers. And what I mean by that remains to be seen, but commercial pharmacies and major hospital uh, health care systems who do have these freezers And, um, you know, having said that, even big places like UC um, uh, Health has had to go out and buy uh, major freezers for uh, the anticipation of these kinds of vaccines becoming available. So vaccine access and distribution. So the National Academy of Medicine and Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine have for, did form a committee on the equitable allocation of vaccines. So the expectation was that we wouldn't have enough vaccine for everybody following the first emergency use authorization. So how are we going to distribute a limited number of vaccines to a large number of people who want them and make it equitable and fair? And- again, also assure that we could get access to the largest number of people as quickly as possible. So they formed a consensus study to assist policymakers um, and health communities in planning. And what they came up with was this, which is now, if you want the website down here, it's a final, this says draft, I apologize. It is now a final document that looks uh, almost exactly like this. Um, And what this is, is a four-tiered approach um, which is the phases across which um, vaccine will be um, distributed with equity as a cross-cutting consideration, which means that in each group, vaccine access should be prioritized for geographic areas identified through the CDC's social vulnerability index. Meaning that even within um, the first phase, high-risk workers in healthcare facilities. High risk workers will have different risks depending on where they live. Um, so, for instance, um, if you live in a community, most healthcare workers are not exposed in the hospital. They are exposed in their communities. And the reason that um, healthcare workers are prioritized is because of their risk of transmitting in the hospital to large numbers of people, essentially acting as vectors. So, um, but it's important that healthcare workers who have a very high risk of being exposed in their communities need to be prioritized. Um, and so, there is a very complicated strategy of how high risk healthcare workers, first responders, followed by phase 1B, people of all ages with comorbid and underlying conditions, older adults in congregate or overcrowded settings. So this phase goes through and you can you know, get to this, the everyone else category is phase four. So how long is it gonna take us to get from phase one to phase four? A, no one knows. It depends on how many vaccines become available as under emergency use authorization, how rapidly those EUA vaccines can be scaled up and made available, how many doses can be made available, And then how rapidly they can be distributed. So how rapidly can we overcome some of those, for instance, cold chain storage requirements of the Pfizer and Moderna, the anticipated early um, EUA vaccines. But I think one of the things that we, we just need to be aware of is that, you know, if I'm everyone else, I can't drop off a vaccine study and expect to go stand in line over here for the first EUA vaccine. I'm just not a priority in the first phase unless I'm a high-risk healthcare worker. And, you know, I can put myself as an example. I spend a lot of time at the computer. I'm a healthcare worker, but I don't think I know. I've I'm on the committee that's making this <laughs> list for UCSD. I'm not at the top of the list for the healthcare workers. And so depending on how many vaccines are available, Uh, You know, I'm pretty far down the list of people that's going to get vaccinated at UCSD. So again, we simply don't know how soon everyone is going to get vaccinated and how long it's going to take to move across this phased approach. So last slide, future directions, vaccine development and widespread implementation in conjunction with therapeutic interventions. Don't forget, we're still working on treatments for COVID are the best hope for pandemic control. The process is undoubtedly politically charged. It depends on massive clinical trials, regulatory approvals and implementation, um, both local health jurisdictions and the CDC. Um, The goal of achieving herd immunity, which out of time I didn't discuss, but that really requires 60 to 70% population immunity. So either through previous COVID infection or or vaccination, we need to immunize 70% probably of the population will require overcoming vaccine hesitancy and building community trust. It is currently estimated that only 50% of the US population would take an effective vaccine if it were made available. So we have a long way to go. Um, Even if we get vaccines, we don't have the trust of the um, uh, public. Um, We need to engage in meaningful scientific communication and sensitivity to past abuses, engagement of effective communities. We need to hold decision makers accountable to a transparent, fact-based process that ensures the highest standards of safety and promotes public trust and ultimately equitable vaccine distribution. And I will end there. Thank you very much.
1: That was an amazing summary of a lot in a short time. It's an important topic and you did a really nice job of, of covering it. Um, I see we've already got several questions that have come through from uh, the participants in the program this evening, Um, but I'm going to launch things with a a little bit of a uh, sort of going back to the beginning of your talk and talk a little bit more about the timeline, because I think there's some really interesting ethical questions that go with that. Um, Can you talk a little more about this process of acceleration? Because what it, it makes sense that overlapping stages can allow us to more quickly move. But it does beg the question of, um, you know, why why don't we always do this? Um, is, have we learned something from this that we can now, that we will apply every time a new flu vaccine has to be developed? Could we use this? I mean, well, I'll come back to that. So go ahead. So what do you think?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we've learned an enormous amount. And I would like to say, yes, we should certainly apply this um, toward future you know, pathogens, uh, vaccines that we need. Um, I I will say uh, it has come at a cost, and by that I mean a financial cost. The cost that has gone into developing the vaccines at this tempo has been extraordinary. I don't know exactly what they are, but extraordinary. Um, So, um, you know, I think it takes something like a global pandemic like this to um, get the attention of the people that need to pay for things like this. So, um, I don't think something like this would be replicated for a disease that wasn't causing the amount of human suffering, economic hardship, and death um so i th- I think that is what um, gave rise to this kind of necessary tempo
1: yeah, so so the the aside question that just came to my mind as I was, as I was talking is I mean some people could say, "Well, all right, if we just decide we want to do this, mm-hmm. look what we can do. We can solve this yes. so can we do this with HIV? Why can't we get an HIV vaccine? Because yeah. that's been yeah. tried over many years. Yeah,
0: no, people have been talking about that. HIV has um, many differences, but the principal difference, I would say, between HIV and, and uh, SARS-CoV-2, HIV mutates incredibly rapidly. So the the surface of the virus changes on a on a you know extremely high rate of mutations. So that when you develop something, an immune, uh, a a compound to develop an immune response to HIV, as soon as the body develops an immune response to HIV, the virus changes, it evades, it escapes the immune response. Um, COVID does not do that. So there are, I've already seen some of the questions, there are different variants of COVID and now there are some suggestions that there may be some more virulent, more aggressive forms of COVID. But when you compare sort of, you know, Um, um, the ability to mutate and change and escape from a vaccine, you know, you can't see me, but HIV is up here and COVID is off my screen down below. So it's, um, they're, they're orders of magnitude different. So, you know, whether COVID will escape from some of the vaccines that have been developed, I don't know. But it is it is a totally different order of magnitude in terms of its relative stability, um, in terms of um, its ability to escape or mutate.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think part of the point I wanted to get to is that um, just because we throw a lot of resources at something does not mean yeah. we can solve no. it quickly. We've, we, we've we probably are, we've thrown, thrown
0: yeah we've sure. probably thrown this many resources at HIV over the last you know two to three decades, and we still don't have a vaccine.
1: So um, I'm going to turn to, to one of the questions because it's it's a, it's a it's a fair question. It relates to mutations. So given that there are at least six variants of COVID-19 like flu, which has various variants per season, wouldn't uh, one want to take various flu vaccines to keep from getting COVID in the season? I'm not sure exactly what they meant there, but I was inferring from this question when I first started to read it that they're basically saying, you've got different variants out there. Um, Different areas of the country might be different variants. So, the fact that it works in one area might 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 not work in another area. So,
0: yeah. Well, I guess for starters, every one of these vaccines is using the sequence of the spike protein from the Chinese um, isolate. So that's not to say that again that there can't be changes over time, but. everyone around the world is moving so fast. They all started with the same isolate from China because that was the first one, excuse me, to be sequenced. So, um, you know, it's quite possible that as time goes on and people become, you know, things become more sophisticated, um, that there will be investigations to look at, you know, somebody who Develops COVID after they've been vaccinated. There will be investigations to look at: was that escape? Was that a different variant, etc. Um, so those questions undoubtedly will come up. But at present, um, I think it's the it's the understanding that a COVID does not mutate at a high rate. In fact, at a very slow rate, um, and that. Um, you know, at least in the relatively small number, I should also update, you know, everything changes in in this field incredibly quickly. So on on November 18th, um, Pfizer submitted its final data set for an emergency use authorization request. And on November 30th, Moderna submitted their final request. So both of them have now analyzed close to 200 Um, COVID cases and have shown 95% in the case of Pfizer and 94.1% in the case of Moderna protective efficacy, vaccine efficacy. So, you know, the vaccine seems to be highly effective, um, you know, across the United States. Um, For the Janssen study, that will be a truly international study and we'll get a sense of whether geographic variability of the virus makes a difference. Um, The first two studies are entirely U.S.,
1: Yeah. So very good. So um, so the number of cases is actually a reminder of of what I'm taking to be an interesting conundrum here, which is that it's actually an advantage that people haven't been doing a good job of protecting themselves from spreading the virus because we get more cases more quickly. Am I correct in that analysis?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, The more widespread, the more out of control COVID is in this country, The faster we get endpoints, the faster we can analyze data, and the sooner we have answers on whether the vaccine is effective. When we started these studies, they projected out many, many more months before we would have answers. And so, you know, when I gave this talk, all of California wasn't purple. (laughs) So um, the expectation was that we would be having these readouts in late February, early March for AstraZeneca and um, Janssen, the next two studies. I think that will be quite a bit sooner now because we had Thanksgiving and we've got Christmas coming and people are not, people are socializing. So I think, um, you know, COVID rates are going up and they're going to get worse before they get better, which means we're going to have more COVID cases, more endpoints which means we'll probably be able to, we the sponsors will be able to analyze data earlier than expected. So we'll probably have um, I believe AstraZeneca is planning on doing an interim analysis within the next few weeks.
1: Yeah. So and I just want to be clear that that, that fact is not a reason why we should want to have No, no, please. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it is a it is a side effect. It is yeah. a silver lining to this very worrisome cloud that we've yeah. Um, So there are a couple of questions related to this mRNA approach to the vaccine, which, um, and I think the first one might be, can you explain a little more about the major differences between the mRNA and adenovirus vector vaccines? Sure.
0: So mRNA, there's never been a licensed mRNA vaccine. So part of the reason that these two are the first two that are likely to be approved is that they are the simplest to make. Um, we've never had one before um, because the, the science, the technology wasn't available. So um, one, one, the again, the sponsors, I, I make this sound like I'm doing it. The sponsors have been able to um, uh, develop uh, a messenger RNA template very quickly. So essentially, if you have the sequence, you can mirror, develop the, the template of the sequence that you're going to develop, that you're going to make very quickly, weeks. So you really just need the sequence. They were just sitting around waiting for somebody to give them the sequence for the spike protein. Um, and then there's some you know proprietary stabilization and lipid nanoparticle um, stabilization. Um, but once you get the mRNA template, you're literally injecting um, messenger RNA that is stabilized into the muscle. Um, and um, it is, uh, we believe, extremely safe um, because it, it doesn't replicate. Um, and the goal is that it generates uh, what we call reactogenicity. It, it creates an immune response. So people do develop fever and tenderness at the injection site. And all of those are good things, um, believe it or not. You want people to develop an immune response that's very short-lived, Um We don't really have any idea how long that immune response lasts. Will you need to have um, a repeat injection at one year, at five years, we have no idea. That's why these studies need to continue for two years, even after the emergency use authorization is out there. The people that are on the vaccine studies need to stay on them so that we can continue to follow and see how long that immunity lasts. but that's why these are the first vaccines that are out there. The adenoviral vectors, there, there have been many other studies, like, again, the, um, the Janssen study. Um, the Janssen Ebola vaccine is actually licensed in Europe. So that is the construct for the Ebola vaccine. So the adenoviral vectors are a common cold, adenoviral, and they use, um, there are many adenoviral serotypes and they use, Adenoviral serotypes that are not common because you don't want to use a common cold that you've had as part of living your life because then you might have antibodies and you would use those already pre existing antibodies to fight the vaccine that you just got. So that's why the um, AstraZeneca uh, company used um, macaque or monkey adenovirus because I'm pretty sure I haven't been exposed to that before. So I have. There actually are some people that have crossover, uh, uh, cross-reactive antibodies, but most people don't have antibodies to the AD26, which is the one used by Janssen, or the uh, macaque adenovirus that's used by the um, uh, AstraZeneca company. So the goal is you use um, a a vector that's going to um, stimulate an immune response. So we're essentially giving people something that's a mild cold, But it doesn't replicate, so it can't. It's not going to propagate and make you have cold for a week. It's just going to create, again, in your arm, a strong immune response and present that spike protein to your other cells.
1: So, actually, you answered in part another question, um, which which related to this this issue of how long before you know how how long do we know about these mRNA vaccines, what's been done so far, and the answer is um, basically not having been approved, we, we don't know. And so yeah. this brings us back to the question of the, um, the studies that um, that need to go out for two years or four yeah. years or more. So to what extent is there a plan to overlap the, uh, we're going to have clinical application I mean people are going to be getting the vaccines yep. starting soon. So are those people automatically going to be in some form of a study or is that even being discussed?
0: No, the people who are getting the vaccine under emergency use authorization, um, there will be um, criteria to report um, vaccine-related side effects, um, and hopefully, you know, this is one of the challenges um, when something like this is scaled up so quickly, um, is that hopefully the, the um, institutions that administer these vaccines have the infrastructure to track this, so, you know, in smaller rural settings, again, it, I mean, it's, it's taken a lot of manpower to try and um, set this up at UCSD. So I, I hope other sites will have, again, the resources to do this. But the goal is, um, again, I'm just going to pick Moderna. So people were randomized um, to vaccine or placebo. Once there is, if there's no vaccine, if there's no effective vaccine out there as an alternative, it is highly ethical to keep people on a randomized study. Once there is an effective vaccine out there that people can take, then you have this ethical dilemma. So the company, um, I believe for all of these studies are going to be faced with this challenge of people who have participated on the study um, we want to offer them vaccine in some way because now, you know, we, we know that the vaccine is effective and it, is, it seems unethical to ask them to stay on placebo while there's a raging, you know, epidemic all around us. So it is not yet clear for any of the studies what that will look like, but in all likelihood, people on the placebo arm will be given vaccine in either a blinded crossover or an unblinded fashion, but they will in all likelihood be vaccinated. And then everyone will have vaccine and they will simply be asked to be followed. Can we continue to follow you for two years?
1: Like, There's a question here about um, vaccine options. So um, there are some other places that worked on vaccines. Someone's mentioning here in China. So to what extent have those vaccines been looked at or are they being held um, basically not sharing information? So to What extent are we learning from some of these other vaccines? Other yeah.
0: I honestly don't know the answer to that. I mean, I know there are you know vaccines um, I know that there have been some that have been approved very quickly before even phase three studies have been done. and then they've you know in Russia, and I think there was one in China very early on that was approved for use in their military population before they'd even done phase three studies. So they're, they're not proceeding, let's just put it this way, they're not proceeding with the same steps that we would do um, to um, collect the same kind of safety data we would do before they put things into at least some populations. They didn't uh, release it into the general population, but they did start vaccinating their military or select parts of their military. So I can't speak generally, I only know what I've read in the newspapers, um, which was that some of those had received um, early approvals within their country, and I know some of them have since pulled off and are no longer approved. So I, I'm going to stick with our process.
1: <laughs> it's tricky. So uh, so related to all of this in terms of vaccine development, so... Um, Can you uh, sort of go over what you know about the characteristics of the population that has been tested? So somebody's asking how many children have been included in these studies?
0: Yeah, almost none. That's an easy one. Um, So the um, Pfizer vaccine uh, received approval to go down to age 12. Um, So um, and when I presented this slide, AstraZeneca um, said 30,000. They've since expanded that to 40,000. Um, with the goal of lowering, uh, expanding uh, eligibility to lower ages. Um, And there is some talk that I think Pfizer may be applying to go down to lower age groups, maybe children. But the bottom line is no one has vaccinated anyone below the age of 12, and now with these early efficacy studies, um, the pediatric vaccines uh, vaccine studies are in development. Um, I don't think there is a plan to do any randomized study because again, now we know they're effective. So I don't think anybody has the, I, I don't think the thought is to do a randomized placebo controlled trial, but maybe to do a what we call a step wedge. So we introduce vaccine sequentially in certain groups. But um, um Pediatric studies are being developed right now, and my guess is in the first quarter of next year, um, there will be studies for uh, children. But I don't know how low still the age is going to go. I've heard five, but I don't know if it's going to go lower than that.
1: Okay. Um, I think it's important to spend a little bit of time on the the racial disparities question. So somebody is asking... you described it as the attack rate, the uh, the incidence of how often people get infected and whether they get disease and whether they get hospitalized and whether they die, that there appears in all of those cases to be um, disparities where a very high percentage of people of color are represented there. And so this person is asking, what do we know about that? Is is this due to different... Jobs of the the particular groups is it do is there a genetic basis here What what yep. what do we know about why that's occurring
0: Yeah, I mean I think the 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 easy answers which have been studied the most are um, yes it's the jobs So um, a lot of um, in in many populations the um, so called essential workers um, people who have um, continued to work uh, and not had the opportunity to shelter at home, to work at home, but have had to continue to go out and work because of financial constraints. So they continue to be exposed on a much more regular basis. Um, There are higher numbers of um, people living in households, so multi-generational households. um, uh, They live in more um, um, higher density um, uh, neighborhoods. So higher density neighborhoods, higher density households, um, uh, greater numbers of essential workers who continue to work despite stay-at-home orders because they have to, um, and so you put all of those things together, and um, they they essentially haven't had any choice. Um, so they've continued to be exposed, um, and um, you know when you know a. 50 year old man who's a bus driver who gets exposed all day at work comes home and has six other people living in his home and he's been exposed at work and then he exposes all of them and one of them is a teacher and you know it just it blows up very quickly and there are very clear um, correlations between the um, density of the household and the rate of COVID Um, and so a lot of it has um, nothing to do with race it has to do with income and um uh the san diego has created something called not created california has developed something called the healthy places index which is um uh, access to um resources for a healthy life so clean air uh you know food for a healthy living income education transportation all of those things and the lower your resources for a healthy life are the higher your likelihood of um, testing positive for COVID. So the lowest 25%, and they do this by um, um, census track. And the 20, the census tracks the lowest 20, the census tracks that have the high, lowest <laughs> healthy places index in San Diego have um, COVID positivity rates that are almost twice what they are in the rest of the county. So you know it's this um, structural you know uh social structural barriers um to um to, to sort of um access to care and everything else um that contribute to this um so yes it's um all of those things
1: yes but so but uh two things one is to be clear the it is about race in that um that in our society there are racial disparities in which jobs you have access to yes. where you can live yes. um and those End up conspiring to make give you an increased risk of contracting SARS CoV 2. Yes. But then the next question is so if it's if as I understand from what I've been hearing about the data, if you are infected, you have a higher risk of ending up being hospitalized. And if you're hospitalized, you have a higher risk of being of dying from the infection based on race as well. And that I don't think we could attribute to this, the factors of where you live. Yeah.
0: Some of it you can though. I mean, there are, um, you know, there are higher rates of obesity, diabetes, um, underlying, yeah. Underlying health conditions, lower access to healthcare. So some of those people present later. Um, so it's, again, it, it gets to be all of those other comorbid conditions that contribute. So I have not seen a really nice analysis that, um, stratifies and separates out, you know, Black race, independent of all of the other factors, um, because th- that would be very difficult to do. But um, there are many other comorbid conditions that go along with um, living in those situations. Um, and um, and that's part of the challenge.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I guess, so tying this back to the question of the populations that are, are being sampled for the purpose of of yep. testing the vaccines. So um, yeah, my understanding is that there's been an attempt to make sure that we have a very diverse group of people that are being tested. So is that are the percentages aiming for the percentages that we see in America of different racial groups or how, how that, do we
0: that's our that's our target. Um, our goal is to match in other words I, I don't want to match the us I'm trying to match San Diego. Um, so we're trying to match the demographics of San Diego. so um, you know one of the concerns we heard early on we still hear is that you know why are you targeting us? Um, and the the answer always is we're not trying to target any population we're trying to represent every population in the same Um, proportion that it is represented in our community. Because if we don't make an effort, if we recruit, for instance, we have very intentionally um, placed our studies in a mobile unit, which travels in more underserved communities and in a new clinic in National City. Because if we recruited entirely in La Jolla, um, we would be um, setting another physical structural barrier to underserved communities saying, figure out how to get to us um, because more of the underserved communities are in South and East, uh, Southeast San Diego. Um, so again, we, we very intentionally placed our studies in those um, um, uh, census tracts that have the lowest healthy um, um, places index. So, um, so that's what we're trying to do, um, and um, and then we're spending a lot of time reaching out to community leaders and um, uh, elected officials and um, community-based organizations and and trying to build trust. But as I said in the talk, it is it is a difficult situation because even though I said this is not how to do it, this you you don't want to take a community and say I would like to build trust and get, you know, try to build enough trust to have you want to participate in the trial. And I've got, you know, eight weeks to do it. Um, it's, it's absolutely the worst thing to do. So we have also kind of changed our messaging, um, which is to say, um, we're talking a lot about um, um, vaccine hesitancy. And we're talking a lot about vaccine hesitancy. When there's a vaccine, let's talk about what your, your concerns are go on the vaccine study, don't go on the vaccine study, but we're talking about when a vaccine is available, what are your concerns? Because if we've um, spent all of this time and energy to develop an effective vaccine and people won't take it, we have failed. So that's really been our mission now because trying to to work, to, to talk to people who have been so mistreated by the health community, the, the medical community and many other communities and and say, you know, Work with us, work with us now, and and try to trust us in the next four weeks is just not a is not a lift that we're able to do, or we should do
1: yeah so um, when I related to sort of still talking about the direction of um, of where we're going now with developing the vaccines and getting people to take them. Um, I am hearing increasing reports of what we should have expected that if people aren't taking sufficient precautions then exponential increase in number of cases and people dying is going to overwhelm our system. And we are getting very close to that point where um, we're not going to have enough resources, enough beds, enough staff to be able to care for those people. So on the other side of this is is the vaccine, so that that might help to start limiting those cases. So um, any thoughts on are, are we are we going to make it here in terms of time? What, I mean I predicting the future is a horrible thing yeah. to try and do, but um how what can we realistically expect from the vaccine? We're not gonna have herd immunity in, in a in a time that's sufficient. So, so no. Um, is are we gonna be able to dull the edge of um, of the uh, increasing number of cases by having the vaccine out sooner? Sooner. Yeah. sooner? Mm.
0: Um I mean, I'd like to say something optimistic. Um, <laughs> I I think I think vaccine distribution is going to be a challenge. Um, I think the first two vaccines, um, you know, the the supply is going to be less than the demand, and I think some of the cold chain storage issues are very significant. So, um, so I think that's going to limit it further. Um, you know, I've, I've been reading about, you know, trial runs that Pfizer has been doing with United Airlines and um, uh, FedEx, you know, with, you know, seeing if they can maintain their their shipping uh, temperatures um, with flights cross country. Um, but, you know, that's I'm just going to predict that's not a vaccine that's going to go into underserved third world or developing regions. It's just not I'm not sure we can get it to rural America. Um, so, um, and then again, the vaccines have to be, um, um, scaled up. So we need millions and millions of doses, um, and, and everybody's got to get two. (laughs) So again, um, distribution is an issue, um, overcoming vaccine hesitancy. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I think by May, June, things are going to start to look a bit better. But that's a long way off. Um, and, you know, right now, I think the the prospects for what things look like in this country come, you know, end of December are pretty bleak. The projections for what our hospital capacity are going to look like. And again, I, you know, I I, Talked a little bit in the in the presentation. I mean, I think that's part of the reason healthcare workers need to be vaccinated is the entire system falls apart if you don't have healthcare workers to care for everybody coming in the hospital. But we also need beds, and when we start talking about you know um, you know surge capacity in um, you know some of the facilities that they're talking about expanding to because we don't have space for everybody. Um, it's yeah, it's 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 a staggering. Um, thought that we're going to have to be sort of placing people in some of these um, other facilities that they're talking about, even in the state of California. So, um, so yeah, I, I I don't think the vaccines are going to, and we're not wearing masks now at the level we need to. Vaccines are not going to help that. We need to start wearing masks. We need to do better with social distancing. And I will predict that we're going to have more lockdowns because we're not doing a good enough job with the very basics of masking and social distancing, which is the core element of controlling this virus. And the vaccine is not going to change that in the next three to four months.
1: Yeah. So, um, so you're, you've 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 certainly hit on a point I'm going to make here, but I, I, it might be useful to be more a bit more explicit that. Um, a case could be made that the issue of community trust, um, the willingness to to take the vaccine when it's available um, could is even more important than the pace of the science. And if we don't if people yeah. aren't willing to use this, then as I, well, you said this earlier, I mean, yeah. the battle is lost. It, it wasn't yeah. w- worth doing. So um, so, uh, well, I guess there isn't much more to be said about that, except that we this is an area of trust that has to be built quickly and i mean i I see in this country personally and collectively that that so many people there are so many people that have politicized this in a way that they can't see any other argument they can't they can't believe that the the virus is real that there's yeah. you know, the masks will help and they live in a universe where, with the same confidence you have about the science, they have the confidence that the science yeah. is just wrong. Right. And I, I, I wish I could come up with an easy way. Maybe somebody in, one of the participants this evening might have some <laughs> ideas about how to, to bridge that gap. Um, let's see. So I'm going to uh, jump down here to see some other questions we've got. Um, so, well, this, this is actually a question of availability of vaccines, which is fair ones for, for all these people. So this person is noting that the U.K. voted on Tuesday to approve the AstraZeneca vaccine. They anticipate they will have 20 to 22 million doses through 2022. And they're saying, why can't they produce more over that period? Which is the same question you could ask for any of the uh, companies. Why can't they? You know, what is the limiting factor in simply producing a lot?
0: Um, I, I think they are going to produce a lot. Um, yeah. So um, I think, you know, part of the trouble is, um, you know, Pfizer. Pfizer is going to produce a lot of vaccine. But my what I've heard, and again, I could be wrong, but what I have heard um, through the news is that they are going to commit only a fraction of that to the United States. AstraZeneca is a, um, the makers of the vaccine are UK based. So again, th- this is a global pandemic and we are not the center of the universe. So, um, Moderna is uh, us based. So again, we have to share the vaccine distribution with everyone. So, um, and it, it is also, it is very true that throughout this whole process, um, 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 uh, facilities have been built to, um, um, to develop and produce mass produce vaccine as rapidly as possible. But, um, you know there are limits and presumably um once they discover that you know Pfizer works they'll build another few um you know um, uh companies or sorry um facilities that can mass produce the the vaccine but um but yes i think there are you know large large um, um sort of plans to to produce mass numbers of vaccines Um, And I, you know, I think money is probably the, you know, the thing that they just need to get flowing more. But there are a lot of vaccine doses available. It really is a matter of, you know, even in the United States, um, you know, I think uh, my notes are that um, 20 million doses of vaccine, a Pfizer vaccine are expected to be be available in the US in December. So, um, you know, the vaccine hasn't even been approved yet and we already have 20 million doses in the United States. California is going to get 327,000 doses of vaccine in December. Small problem, we have 2.4 million healthcare workers and those are the people that are slated to get vaccinated. So again, you know, um demand is going to outstrip supply in a big way. Um and that's going to continue um and so there's there's going to be this huge tension between you know people who want the vaccine and you know some of the again this idea of the super spreaders um who may continue to be super spreaders you know college campus kids they're way down the list
1: yeah it's, it's, it's so this actually is probably a good time to point out that um um I you know, I will I I don't know if I should be doing this, but I will reveal a secret, which is that your talk was recorded just a few yes. days before <laughs> today and things have changed since yeah. then. So um, and you you pointed out earlier today in our discussion that um that there are some new guidelines that have moved um members of the more senior part of our population <laughs> off of the highest priority list and into a second phase. So do you want to talk a little bit about the changes and sure. what we should think about them?
0: I don't know what we should think about them. Um, so the um, ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, I just call it ACIP. So ACIP has not yet finalized their guidelines, but um, ACIP are the, the, the CDC's organizational body who normally provides all the recommendations for vaccines. Um, and they are um, the the guidelines that I presented during my talk were the ones that were first out. Um, nationally. it was a a panel that was commissioned by the CDC and the NIH. But now ACIP is developing their guidelines for the exact same thing. What is the prioritization strategy that should be used for these vaccines when they're approved? And um, they have released their sort of first line approach to the phase one. And what they did, which was a bit different, was they modeled um, what's the fastest way to limit epidemic spread. Um, And it's very science driven, um, data driven, um, which I respect. Um, It doesn't make me comfortable, but it's still data driven. And um, and they said, who is most likely to transmit the virus? And it is not older adults. It is younger people. It is essential workers. It's that bus driver who's going to get infected and then expose many other people on the bus. So um, they shifted. They agreed also that healthcare workers and um, residents of long-term care facilities should be first. That's the first tier, Group 1A. Then they split Group 1B into essential workers and people with underlying conditions. But they moved older adults to the right um, last. Not last, but last in the group of 1As. So um, older adults who, frankly, are the people that have the highest rate of death in the country um, now moved all the way to the end of the list in the first phase group. Um, and if you look at the timeline of what that looks like, um, you know, the, the group one, which is the healthcare workers, they estimate if we do this really efficiently it would take place over five to seven weeks and then the group 1B, which are the essential workers and the adults with high-risk conditions. And that's 190 million people, just to give you an idea. That's, that's a lot of people. Um, that would take place in their wildly um, optimistic estimate over um, 16 weeks. Um, and then um, older adults, which is uh, more age over 65, would take place over... Um, sort of six months and uh, there are 53 million older adults. So, you know, this is a lot of people, but um, you know, that sort of suggests that older adults aren't gonna see vaccine for six plus months for five, five months um, until, and that assumes everything goes beautifully, you know, that, I don't think that's taken into consideration the whole cold chain storage issues and delays and whatnot. But um, so that, that is a, that's a scientifically driven, data-driven approach to we're going to vaccinate the people who are at the greatest risk of transmitting to others, not necessarily the people who are at greatest risk of dying from the disease.
1: Yeah, well, this is a really good example of where we can talk about scientifically data-driven as if it's neutral and doesn't have an <laughs> underpinning, but um, there are different choices about what you decide to measure will yeah. give you different answers. And um, right now I'm, I'm really cognizant of the fact that we use words like risk, um, sometimes somewhat sloppily. So there, there is a, a risk, a probability of being infected. There's a probability of infecting someone else, but there's also a probability beyond that probability question is the severity of what might happen. And if you're in a particular group, the severity of of uh, the most extreme outcome, which is death, is much higher. So we have both the probability of an event and the severity of what might happen. And if depending on which you decide to weigh, you might decide to use a different algorithm. And that's what we're talking about here—an algorithm to decide who gets uh, who gets the vaccine first. Um, but having said that. Um, you know, I, I talked to you about this a briefly before the program, but I'm, I'm still puzzling over sort of on the ground what this is going to look like. So I don't care who it is. Somebody says, this is what we think should be the sequence of who's going to be getting the vaccines. So what happens in a particular hospital or a particular location where they've got the vaccine I mean, who is going to be standing there saying, oh, wait, there's still a healthcare worker who hasn't gotten it. So I can't give this to you. Yeah. How is that going to play out? Are there going to be penalties if they decide, oh, somebody walked in the door and I think I should give it to them? How do who's controlling that? How does that work? Oh,
0: I mean, again, um, I don't know is kind of the easy cop out answer. Um, I. The thing I would really like to see is a bit more um, consistency um, across sites because I feel fairly comfortable about the strategy we've taken. And even with our strategy, I think there are unanswered questions, um, like the one you said. Um, You know, we've, well, I'll get back to that. But, you know, I don't know how. UCSD's approach differs from Scripps, differs from Kaiser, differs from smaller regional hospitals because everyone has kind of been left to their own devices to create these strategies. And they're moving so quickly. I, you know, I don't, on the one hand, I don't really want to be told what to do, but some guidance would be helpful. Um, We don't even know yet, which of these um, phased approaches are we allowed to pick? Do we have to use one? We don't know. Um, but, you know, we we have been using, because it came out first, and we've been practicing this for weeks now, months, we've been using the National Academy of Medicine and Science. So we've set our whole system up around that tiered approach. Um, but we had our meeting today, and you know, one thing came up. If you're going to prioritize, I think nobody would disagree, emergency room um, staff, not just physicians, staff. Are all at high risk, but um, if the vaccine comes out, make up a date, December twenty-first. What if you're on vacation? If you're an ER doc and you're on vacation that week, how do we? How do we find people? I mean, again, it's there are all of these nuances of we need to get everyone. Now, the good news is we have a system that has an incredibly organized. Medical record. We kind of know where everybody is all the time, so we can make a list of everybody, and we're not going to penalize you for being off at a community hospital this week. We we know you're an emergency room staff doctor, nurse, attendant. Um, so if you're not here in the next two weeks, we're still going to make sure your name is on the list. But again. That's because we have an incredibly good electronic system where we know where everybody should be, and we can track them. I don't, I don't know because what you said is absolutely true. Um, If you don't have a good system, um, somebody could show up two weeks later and say, "Wait, I was on that list, and you skipped me." So we're starting, we're forming this list, and our system is, I hope, going to be something to the effect of, "You'll get an email." you'll get a chance to opt in or opt out or defer. And you'll get a limited window of time to opt in, opt out, or defer. And if you opt out, you'll give up your seat. And if you don't answer within a certain period of time, you get skipped over and moved on to the next person.
1: Yeah, so so as you as you were speaking, I, I've I've realized, I think I know the answer to the question of what this is going to look like. And a really good example of that is, um, it's pretty well accepted by almost every guideline you would look at that that if somebody comes in with a pretty likely cold virus, mm-hmm. you don't give them an antibiotic. Mm-hmm. But a lot of physicians
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> get it. <laughs> well, the I got the patient in front of me; they really yep. want the antibiotic. I better give yep. them the antibiotic. So, I, so what if that, you're on staff, yeah.
0: three hospitals.
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, just, you they just keep trying to find a physician who says yes, and they will. Yep. Yep. So that seems to be one risk here. And so it, it, it seems good to have the guidelines. And I think the more explicit that guidance can be and sort of how you do it on the ground so that when the patient comes in, you can say, this is what we have to do. You, you, know, yep. you aren't yet eligible, yep. here's when you will be and be clear about that. But even beyond that, I mean, all of these conversations are assuming that when we are ready for a particular group, that we have enough doses for that entire group, and we won't. We will not. So who in that group is going to get it first, and will it just be first come, first serve? I know.
0: I don't. I That I don't know the answer to. I mean, you know, do you want to have an A name? <laughs> is it random? I have no idea. Yeah, um, and yeah, And we've sort of put off that decision until we know how many doses we're going to get, but um, it, it is absolutely true, regardless of ha- what approach we take, we are not going to have enough doses for everybody who wants it. There's no way.
1: Yeah. So, um, so we've, we've got a bunch of questions here still, and I'm trying to figure out which ones I can get. <laughs> so, um, um, so this is just a, an interesting logistic question. So yep. you need two doses. Yep. Um, how do you make people get both doses, I presume they'll want to get both doses, but yeah. how do you, what, if anything, can we do to to draw the connection so that it happens?
0: Yeah, I mean, again, for us, again, it's all gonna be tracked in our, in our electronic system. And, you know, we were discussing, um, you know, if somebody gets vaccinated in, you know, Chicago and comes and says, you know, I was visiting home and now I'm here, the goal is to vaccinate them, so we don't really care where you got dose one. We'll give you dose two, and similarly, if you you know leave us, go get dose two. Um, but um, you know, I, I I think the the priority is um, you know speed, distribution, and efficiency. Um, so you know, there absolutely will be people who fall through the holes because if you decide that you don't feel like coming in and you've been invited three times for dose two, you may not get dose two because there is no time to handhold you through this. Um, So yeah, people are going to have to show some degree of responsibility here.
1: And depending on the severity of reaction they have when they got that first dose, they may very well say, I don't want to do that again.
0: Yeah. We're we're going to have a a hotline um, so that people can call in because, you know, I man our 24-7 call line and you know, people sometimes don't feel so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So mostly what I do is provide reassurance. No one has needed to go to the hospital or do anything, but you know, people can have fevers of, uh, I think the top one I've taken is, uh, you know, 102.9. So they get hot. They don't feel good, but.
1: Okay. So there's a question here that I don't, think people will do this, but since somebody's asking, maybe you can say some things that will keep people from even considering doing this. So they're saying, what's to keep someone from getting a Pfizer shot and then going and get a Moderna shot?
0: Well, my hope is we have no idea if that's safe to do. Um, You know, I think, um, you know, one of our big concerns is, you know, we're, you know, I hope I'm convincing you that we're at the cutting edge of You know, we've evaluated safety and we're not doing anything that's cowboy crazy. But I think going out and getting two sequential vaccines that are different, that have no data, that's cowboy crazy. Um, I just, you know, we know what works. Let's, Let's stay inside the parameters of what we have studied and what we know works. There's no reason to go out and expose yourself. I mean, there are people that do have serious side effects with these vaccines. That's why I carry this telephone. Um, and there's just no reason to, to ask for more trouble than you, you know some people already get, <laughs> get significant side effects. This is, this is not the flu vaccine. People feel bad with this vaccine. So, and, and I, I don't want to say everybody, but you know the rate of side effects is 50 to 60 percent, so it is not trivial. Most people have mild to moderate side effects, and they resolve quickly but that means that a non-trivial proportion of people feel pretty bad for a while, a couple of days. Um, So you don't want to run out and do that again.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. So, uh, so uh, related to that, so there, there are multiple vaccines that are going to be out there soon. So, um, so this person is asking, will people have an option of which one to choose? And if they did, I I mean, right now, I mean, I, I think it's hard to say there's any reason to say that anybody would want to consider one over another. Um, But
0: yeah, right now, I think Pfizer and Moderna are equal, you know, 95 versus 94.1% vaccine efficacy. Side effects are the same. Um, I would take whichever one they gave me. Um, So I think, um, I don't think you will have a choice for many months. I think vaccine is going to be so scarce that you will be lucky if you can get one. Um, So I think when we get to, you know, that's part of my hope that people will stay in the ongoing trials, at least until we have those first readouts, because if we can get, I mean, I'm optimistic that both AstraZeneca and Janssen will have similar efficacies Um, and again, four vaccines means four emergency use authorizations, you know, more vaccines. And, you know, then we can really start to scale up. And I didn't talk at all, but there are two more vaccine studies that are about to start, Novavax and Sanofi. Um, And so again, more vaccines, more vaccine trials means potentially more emergency use authorization vaccines. And um, one vaccine company cannot vaccinate the world. We need multiple vaccines. So, um, so again, I think um, I don't think people are going to have a choice about what they take for many months because you know no doctor's office, I suspect, is going to have Pfizer. You're only going to get Moderna at a doctor's office, big hospitals, and maybe big uh, CVS's are going to have Pfizer. Um, but you know it's going to separate out based on the storage requirements.
1: Yeah. So um, having said all this, it just occurred to me so. You've got people in a study that was projected to go out for a long period of time, and now we're worried that things are looking so good that too many people will drop out of the study and so they can go get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, do they automatically get the vaccine that was the, the, the uh, drug arm of the study, the active arm of the study, or do they have to go get in line with everybody else to get a vaccine?
0: No, I think the, the, there's a strong motivation to give them active vaccines so that they will stay in the study. So all of the companies feel very strongly that it should be a benefit to be in the study, not a, not a hindrance or a, a compromise to their health. So um, we won't know until the first emergency use authorization comes out. But I have written, read, I've read from Pfizer that as soon as the EUA comes out, they're going to vaccinate everybody in the placebo arm.
1: Okay, so they're yeah. just automatically going to do that. Right? Yeah.
0: yeah. So, okay. and I, you know, th- I think the big debate is whether they, again, do a, what they call a blinded crossover where they try to maintain the blind. So they're going to vaccinate everyone in the study again. Oh, yeah. Okay. So that so you um,
1: might be getting a placebo the second time. And the yeah.
0: Vaccine. So people who got placebo the first time get vaccine, and people who got vaccine the first time get placebo. So that's a blinded crossover some of the studies are favoring a blinded crossover so that they can maintain the blind but i think many of the um uh studies just it's cheaper frankly if you've got a study with you know thirty thousand people it's cheaper to just bring in half the cohort and just give them the vaccine so i don't know yet what's going to happen but i think i think it is highly likely that everyone on placebo will get vaccine quickly when the vaccine is approved
1: so I want to make sure I squeeze in one question here quickly because um, it actually wasn't clear to me and it might not be to others. Mm-hmm. But right now, if you're in any one of these trials, are, is everybody routinely tested to see if they have been infected or is it only those people who show symptoms?
0: Only people who show symptoms. Um, there is um, Pfizer. Pfizer. Pfizer, we didn't participate in Pfizer. And I think Pfizer did some asymptomatic screening, but all of the other studies are only testing people when they develop symptoms. So that is a huge hole in the study design. So one of the big questions, one of the challenges with um, COVID is the rate of asymptomatic infection and asymptomatic spread. And so... um, You know, we still don't know um, how much asymptomatic spread is taking place. Um, And, um, you know, it would be very nice to know that and what kind of an impact the vaccine has on asymptomatic shedding. And we're not going to know that um, because we're not measuring it well, at least in the studies that I've participated in. Um, So, yes, um, uh, people are only tested when they become symptomatic.
1: I, I don't want to be too negative here, but it, it, isn't it possible? What if if the vaccine sufficiently activates your immune system so that you don't show symptoms, but you still have the infection? And so now we are creating people who are asymptomatic spreaders. Now, I
0: wasn't going to go there, but yes, that's a huge... I've to ask. I mean,
1: I'm sorry, but that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: that's, there's actually a whole modeling paper around that, uh, you know, if the vaccine efficacy, it's, it's thought that if the vaccine efficacy is high enough, that that is unlikely to happen, but it has to be high enough in the prevention of severe symptomatic disease, which both of these seem to be, but you're right, if all you do is prevent symptomatic disease and convert people from sort of, you know, mild, sort of mild symptomatic to asymptomatic, you're, you've got kind of the perfect storm to create vaccinated people who are asymptomatic spreaders. Um, and, and I would say thus far, the first two vaccines don't look like they fall into that category. But if you want to think about doom and gloom, which I did for quite a while, because I didn't think the vaccines would be this good, um, there's a very nice modeling paper that looks at exactly this question, because it is at least theoretically possible, yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. So but, you know, there are lots of possibilities um, yeah. that this possibility sounds low for many reasons. Yes. And so I'm trying to bring us to a, a positive <laughs> end here so that I mean, these, these vaccines are, as you just noted, I mean, it is incredible how successful three vaccines appear to have been. Yeah. Um, and uh, given what we're facing economically and health wise at the same time, it seems like it's really it's, it's, it's good news. It's worth a try.
0: Yeah. yeah. So. And just, you know, to really highlight a, a really positive, one of the, the sort of benchmarks of these study outcomes is the prevention of severe COVID. So, um, you know, ventilator support, um, you know, uh, organ failure, et cetera. Um, the Pfizer study, um, uh, I think it was, I want to make sure I get these correct and say them correctly. Um, the Pfizer study. Um, yeah. Yeah. Pfizer study had um, 10 cases of severe COVID. Nine of them were in the placebo group. So that was 90% effective at preventing severe COVID. The Moderna case, Moderna study had 30 cases of severe COVID. All of them were in the placebo group. Hmm. So it was incredibly, both of these incredibly effective at preventing severe COVID, which is, you know, preventing death, which is really what we want to do.
1: Yeah. And so so I think the lesson that we should be taking from this is whatever it is, even if we have the worry that I've just raised a moment ago, even with that, we need to wear masks. We need to maintain social distance and decrease the risk of spreading. And if people do get sick, if they've got the vaccine, they won't get very sick.
0: And exactly. Yes, yeah.
1: So, well, so this has been excellent. I really appreciate your your clarity of thought and your really helpful answers. Um, We had about 30 questions we didn't get to. I tried to incorporate multiple questions in some of the things we discussed. So I want to thank the participants this evening for your your attention and for your great questions. Susan, thank you for a really stimulating program.
0: Thank you very much. It was fun. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Thanks.